the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good to have you with us for this, um, well, it's it's a new world, isn't it? It is, nevertheless, still a Wednesday, the 24th of March, and just about six minutes after the hour of 5 p.m., as uh, you might normally, I'd say, be on the ride home with us, but you're probably a little bit more static these days, and that's probably at least temporarily a good thing. We've got some important news for you over the course of the next two hours, so we hope to inform, maybe amuse you, and certainly um, by the time it's all said and done, inspire you as well. These are challenging times to be sure, and um, you know, I think maybe one of the most important reminders for all of us in the midst of all of the news, some of it good today, some of it not so good, is to just simply take a big, deep breath. I know we're all a little stressed right now. We're trying to get used to a new set of circumstances, this stay-at-home stuff. I'm I'm not so sure about. This is the first day of doing the broadcast, actually, from the uh, the Roberts Mansion here, or... or <laughs> <laughs> putting that uh, to a great degree of exaggeration from the, the humble abode of yours truly. And, uh, you know, we get used to um, the shelter-in-place order. I think we have to have, um, have to have a time when we can spend some time reflecting and putting proper perspective on what's happening here. We're going to do that today throughout the course of the program. Um, syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek will join us a little bit later on to talk about the numbers. We'll also talk about some of the potential threat to our constitutional rights, and we'll find out what Bob means by that later on in the program. Also, constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus will join us heading toward the second hour this evening Talk a bit about um, some of the responsibilities and rights of churches during the current shelter-in-place. We are here, actually, officially, the beginning of week number two. We've got another week plus ahead of us, and maybe it'll even be longer than that. Time will certainly tell. Let's talk about the bad news front. L.A. County today reporting the first virus death of a person under the age of 18, reminding us that the COVID-19 virus does not discriminate. Meanwhile, as Congress is getting its act together and putting together some financial lifelines for the economy, the Dow saw its best day in 87 years, up more than 2,000 points as they reach closer toward a two to reporting the $2.5 trillion bailout package for the economy. And as we're trying to figure out where all of this is headed, Let's not lose sight of the fact that there's one group that have been traumatized by all of this in ways that we as adults might not even be aware of, and that's children. If you and I as an adult 
are having a difficult time figuring out what all of this means to our jobs, our economy, to our health. Imagine a child. We've invited Dr. Meg Meeker to join us. She is a best-selling author, a pediatrician, parenting expert. Her latest book, by the way, is called Raising a Strong Daughter in a Toxic Culture, 11 Steps to Keep Her Happy, Healthy, and Safe, newly released by Regnery Press. But today she joins us to share some tips on how to help our children cope through all of this. And Dr. Meeker, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Well, thanks for having me. Let's get down into some first details. You know, as I mentioned, we as adults are struggling trying to make sense of it all. Imagine a young child who's overhearing conversations between the adults, the television news flashing word about sickness and death and all of this. And for a child, this has got to be an extremely traumatic time. You know, it really is because they watch their parents very, very closely. And if they sense that their parents are anxious or afraid, they take it on. And because it's very uh, unnerving for a child, say you're five or eight years old and you see mom and dad who you believe know everything about everything and they can conquer anything, and they're afraid. It's very, very frightening for kids. Um, there are also teenagers who are very afraid. Um, you know, some aren't afraid. They'll go to Fort Lauderdale on, you know, their spring break, and then others are tremendous amount of anxiety and depression over it. So there's a wide gamut, but regardless where your child falls on that, it's really important that we parents take some proactive steps to help help our kids. And, you know, right now I would imagine that there's at least in the short term a sense of adventure here. You know, I, I'm working from home today, so getting the home studio set up and learning how to uh, engage in all the processes as if I was still at the office and studios, uh, you know, has, has kept me occupied. I'm wondering, though, what it's going to be like in a week or two or if the current shelter-in-place order gets extended beyond April 7th, that it goes from being an exciting adventure, like camping out in the backyard, to then becoming very frustrating. And I imagine for children, the toughest thing has got to be just the overall sense of disruption of normal routines. Exactly. You know, we all uh, got hit sideways by this, and I think that kids all of a sudden go from being with their friends at school, we know that's important for elementary school kids, high school kids, and talking with them and engaging with them and going to classes with them to, boom, it's, it's all over. And now they're home with mom and dad. And it's really startling. And I think that they feel very um, isolated from their friends. Of course, they can go on the Internet or, um, you know, uh, social media, whatever, to connect with them. But it's not the same. And so I think it's really a jolt. And I think that parents need to understand it's going to be a hard transition for the kids as well as them in the first days. So give yourself some grace. If everybody's fighting, you know, you can get past it, but it's a hard transition for everybody right at the beginning. And that social isolation that you speak to, I mean, certainly we have advantages that those who survived through the 1918 flu pandemic did not have through the Internet and social media and ways in which we can be connected while not being, you know, in in close proximity to each other. But it's simply not the same. Then I guess when you add to this and the disruption of normal routines, they're no longer involved in school and play activities and church, and suddenly they're being told, you got to stay in the backyard and no further. Uh, the ability of particularly younger children to understand all of this, uh, yeah. how we explain to them things like, 
new habits of social distancing or hand washing. I've, I've said several times, you know, my late mother would be thrilled. It took her 50 years, and finally I got to the point where I'm washing my hands the way I'm supposed to. Well, you know, and we get, as adults, get tired of you know hearing people say this, wash your hands, wash your hands, don't touch your face. And for us, it's relatively easy, easy to adapt to these new habits. However, kids are not used to wa- washing their hands very much, particularly boys. You know, they, they have stuff to do and places to go and running around. So it is important to stress that to your kids, even show them how long should you wash your hands. You need to be able to sing all of happy birthday while you're washing your hands, and then it's good enough. Make sure you have sanitizer in all the rooms of your house. Your kids are going to feel like you're nagging them, but you really have to do it to change their habits. So we have to realize it's a lot easier for us to change our habits than for our kids because they just don't think. Now, here's the tough question. We understand certainly that in the normal course of life, there will be times when we may perhaps have to explain to a young child, perhaps a child young enough that they don't quite fully understand the mechanics of sickness and death. And how do you help a six-year-old understand what's going on? And every night on the news, there's the talk of new infections and, and the number of people that are dying from this. And then they hear things like, well, people over the age of 70, and suddenly they're worried about well, what, what might happen to grandma and grandpa, or right. will their friends and schoolmates be safe? How do we engage in that conversation without without going into, you know, playtime, in other words, without lying to children, but at the same token, explaining things and offering them a sense of comfort? I think that's a great question. First of all, you tell them what the coronavirus is. They're going to hear this big word, and you explain to them it's a, it's a bug, it's a germ, that we don't have a medicine to kill yet, but some good things are on the horizon, and it spreads really quickly, um, and show them how it spreads. Then you try to figure what is going on in their minds. A lot of kids will worry about their parents dying, maybe not themselves, and then they'll worry about themselves dying. So I would very simply say, I want you to realize something here. My job is to worry and take care of the family. That's not your job. So if there were things going on, I will let you know. That gives them some relief. Second of all, I would say we could say this today. It may not be true in a month, but that the chances if, um, mommy or daddy gets this, I'm assuming they're reasonably young and healthy and strong, um, their chances are that if we get it, we could be sick for a while, but, but I don't want you to worry about us dying right now because that's really a very, very, that's very unlikely to happen. And then you tell them, too, if you get it as a child, mom and dad are here to take care of you. Um, we haven't had anybody your age die yet except, you know, in China. So you really try to, you're honest, you're straightforward, you explain things, and then you also say to them, if you have questions about it, please come and ask me. A lot of myths are spreading around out there, uh, you know, that you can gargle with 80-degree water or Listerine and kill the virus, you know. So it's just say to your kids, I want you to get your information from me. And finally, do your best to quell their fears. Um, even if you're afraid, Try not to show it to your kids. I mean, they'll know kind of anyway, but get them on, your fears under control. Give them some, some truth, um, which is that the very, very, very low percentage of people die from this so far. 
And um, and then, again, just tell them, it's really my job as your mom or dad to worry and to take care of you, not your job. Does that also mean, doctor, at the end of the day, maybe learning when to back off on the TV set or the news information over- overload? I mean, if we as adults starve for information, when is this going to be over? When will things return back to some semblance of normalcy? What's going to happen to my 401k, my job, yeah. et cetera, et cetera? If we get pulled into this vortex, imagine what a child is thinking as they're watching us watch the news and watching our reactions. Do we really need, not only for our own mental health and well-being, but also for the sake of the kids begin to kind of put the brakes on when it comes to information overload oh absolutely you know kids really don't need it during the day at all um because they could get information from their parents but i think that the danger of of jumping into this vortex as you say is it could lead to tremendous anxiety and sort of emotional overload if you will because all it does is is stir up um fear and um, it's really important to keep kids away from even teenagers. That brings us to you've got kids home all day who are used to having a schedule. You've really got to set times for screens and times not for screens. Uh, because if you have a 15-year-old that's in his or her room all day with a laptop, they're going to get an earful about what the virus is doing. So I also so, so keep them protected from that and really dial down. The other thing it's important to do, try to infuse some fun into their day. You know, we're all so worried, are, you know, are we going to have enough toilet paper or whatever, or am I going to die, that it's really important to just sort of lighten up periodically because there's so much to be thankful for and grateful for. And it, it's very reasonable to sit down and watch a fun movie or just read a fun book to your kids or, you know, make up games or play a fun board game because I think that's critically important for their emotional health now. This is certainly going to be a case that will try the parenting skills of of even the most experienced or patient parent. Uh, At the end of the day, does the importance of keeping some degree of routine about this, is that important as well? And I ask that question because when you go from the structure of in bed by 9, up at 7, school by 8, you know, all of these sorts of things, and now suddenly it's a free-for-all for everybody, we're all home, the likelihood to stay up late, watch a movie, things of this sort. Is it going to be more difficult for children when we have to trans- transition back to normal life? Well, and I encourage parents very strongly, you know, it's not summer vacation, and it isn't a free-for-all. So kids kids like routine. They, they'll, they'll buck you, they'll complain plain, the wine, I don't, but they really thrive on routine. So kids who are used to a routine, even a kindergartner, do your best as a parent to keep them on that routine. Not exactly, but say, you know, from nine to noon or nine to one, this is school time. You know, you're going to read a book, you're going to do this, and then you can go outside or you can do something. Um, and then, you know, we're going to have some activity or exercise or whatever. And I encourage parents if you're in an area where your kids can go outside and play, make them go outside and play. Kids go crazy if they're indoors too much. Um, and so it's really important to get them out. But really, as early as you can, get them on a routine and a schedule. Life will be so much better at home um, because it's hard for us, too, as parents. If we're not used to having our kids around, our whole routine is upside down. We have to get their set first and then get our set. But transitions are hard, but parents can do it. Uh, but they got to really sort of lay down the law a little bit and say, guys, 
this is hard for everybody, but we're all in this together. We're all making changes, and this is what we're going to do. Your day, it's not summer vacation. Some solid advice from Dr. Meg Meeker. More information, by the way, online may be a great resource for you, particularly during these challenging times at MeekerParenting.com. That's Meeker, M-E-E-K-E-R, MeekerParenting.com. Dr. Meg Meeker, we appreciate so much the time and the insights. Here at 521 on this Wednesday edition of Lifeline, let's get you updated on some traffic, such as it is. Is there traffic anymore? Well, there is a bit out there. Let's find out where and why from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. 527 here on um, a new Wednesday, a Wednesday, the 24th of March. And as we make our way through deeper understanding of all that's going on here, not only in relationship to how to make sense to all of this to our kids, <laughs> we as the adults are having a difficult time. And part of that, I think, is not only because this is very new to this generation, but also because there's an awful lot of conflicting information out there. And I get the the ongoing lingering sense that while this is very serious and we do need to react to it, um, is the reaction really in pace with the challenge or the threat to the United States, not just our physical health, but our national well-being and certainly economic health. Well, let's talk about this. Joining me now is syndicated talk show host and best-selling author Bob Zadek. Bob is the host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. And Bob, is always an honor and privilege to have you join us. Thank you very much, Craig. And by the way, at... Uh I'm not trying to correct you, but today is a Tuesday, not a Wednesday. You know, um, <laughs> that's, that's okay. Because when you're stuck at home, you lose all track of what day of the week it is. Because all of yeah, these is... <laughs> don't exist. Yeah. This is certainly very true, isn't it? You know, I, I got up today thinking, you know, okay, well, I have to consider my commute to the office and realized... I don't think I'm going to run to any traffic between the, the bedroom door and the bathroom heading down the hall to the studio. So, yeah, it's, it's a new for, world I to be I'd sure. Be for my, I thought I'd be late for my high school classes. Then I realized, no, no, I graduated 60 years ago. Not a problem. <laughs> there you go. Bob, I want to talk about where we're at today in terms of the information that is out there. We're certainly all of us on information overload. And perhaps the most challenging thing is... Who do you believe? The news has one report, then another news channel has another report. There's even conflicting information that's coming out of the so-called COVID-19 team out of Washington, D.C. and the White House. And I have to wonder, particularly as we talk about hard numbers, today they say globally 418,000 people affected by COVID-19, 18,000 deaths, 108,000 that have recovered. Here in the United States, 53,287 infected, 689 deaths, 370 people recovered. And I hear those numbers, and I see that we're up nearly 10,000 infected from just yesterday. And I have to wonder, if the United States government struggles with things like 
taking the census every 10 years to make sure that we're not undercounting or overcounting. And given uh, how fast all of this is happening, how do we know that a lot of the so-called data out there is, isn't more anecdotal than empirical? Craig, you said we are suffering from information overload. We are not. We are suffering from an incredible shortage of information. We are suffering from misstatement overload. That's for sure. But we are hungry for information and getting precious little of it from the usual or the sources of information we instinctively turn to. To give just one example, um, every day on the news, and I'm going to come back to mainstream news in a moment, but every day on the news, we hear something like, and you'll all, this phrase will be familiar to all of us, that we have uh, the number of new deaths or number of new cases of the virus today has gone up from yesterday. Well, that statement is patently false. We have no idea how many new cases we have. We only know how many newly discovered cases we have. We have no idea and no way to learn how many cases there are. Now, the difference is that when they announce the number of new cases, leaving out the word discovered, when they do that, when they leave out that very important word discovered, it makes it seem like the number of actual cases is growing. But what is really happening is, as we finally get to have tests kits distributed, more and more people are tested, we are discovering, we discover more cases of the coronavirus that have existed for weeks and weeks and weeks earlier. So we are learning about new cases, but they aren't necessarily new cases being created. That's but one example of how we are being misled. And if, if one wants to really be cynical, you can wonder whether the deception is intentional for various purposes or not. I'm not going to go there, but I don't discourage others from at least thinking about it. Uh, the media, for example, uh, and I'm going to share with you, Craig, when you talk about uh, information, newly, information and overload, I have made a remarkable discovery during this process. I, like everybody else, found myself as a regular part of my routine uh, taking the news from mainstream media newspapers, from the evening news, various channels of television news, which I would watch while having my dinner, and uh, online and the like. And I found myself getting increasingly, increasingly agitated. And I stopped watching the news, and I, I replaced that with selected bloggers selected columnists, selected smart people who I truly trusted for their brain power and their objectivity. And I have limited all my information to that selected, trusted group. And Craig, I am calm and relaxed and optimistic and comfortable in the conclusions I'm able to reach, in the observations that I have made, it has made a profound difference in how I feel about the world and the confidence I have in my own decision-making. I invite the audience to try it.
And I think there's very solid advice behind that notion, Bob, because at the end of the day, because there is so much information, disinformation, incomplete information, and quite frankly, just outright guessing with a whole variety of agendas here, you know, some of this is driven by concerns for the nation's health care, some of this is driven by concerns over ratings and everything in between, uh, to be more selective, not only in terms of the sources that you're listening to, but I think, too, the amount of time that you're spending. Because if anything, we've learned this. At the end of the day, they really don't totally know, do they? I mean, for example, instead of saying we have X number of newly discovered cases, they just say X number of cases. And and I, I, I liken it to the notion of if if we're not able to test everybody across the nation immediately and then all of a sudden we begin to test more and more people just because we're discovering more cases doesn't necessarily mean that the coronavirus is spreading that rapidly per se any more than to say well some people went down to texas and they drilled for oil and they found more oil and therefore there must be more oil in texas well no that doesn't mean that more dinosaurs have have died that just means that through exploration, we have discovered more oil. Like through testing, we're discovering more people that have been infected. Does that make sense? It it does make sense, Craig. And one more dynamic I'd like to submit to you and to our audience for their consideration. We know there is that news, mainstream news, the media, they are seeking attention. They want eyeballs, they want ears, because that's what they sell to the advertisers. So the fight is to get your attention. Now, we all know from our personal relationships, whether a relationship with our children or with our spouse, with our friends, or we all know from when we go to the theater or to the movies, if we enjoy a movie, it's because the movie got us feeling things whether it's fear or happiness or love, the same with a concert, the same with a a live theatrical performance. You go there to be emotionally stimulated. That's what draws you. If you feel flat after entertainment, you say that wasn't very entertaining. Entertainment is equated with evoking an emotion. Well, so therefore, the media, indeed the politicians, can get your attention the best to the extent that they can evoke an emotion. And therefore, the coin of the realm, the way that they get your attention, i.e. your vote, or your turning to that station, the way they get your attention is directly related to how much emotion they can generate. Therefore, they go to extreme positions because that's what makes you feel fearful or excited or angry. And if they can make you feel, they got you. And and I find when I read objective data, I don't feel anything except intellectually competent, which is the most calming feeling in the world. And that's why I urge people for mental health reasons during this time of what you call information overload, and I call disinformation overload, but we're talking about the same facts or absence of facts. Uh, the way to escape from that is, is be informed 
but be selective where you get your information from. And we can discuss the details. I pointed out one example just now with leaving out the one word, discovered, which makes all the difference in the world when talking about whether the uh, extent of the virus is increasing and by how much. One word makes all the difference in the world, and it doesn't excite people. It just gives them facts. I want to pivot to sort of your your primary wheelhouse. Um, for folks that are familiar with your program, they know, of course, that in addition to being a best-selling author, talk show host, a lawyer, you're also a constitutional expert, certainly one of the brightest guys when it comes to the historicity of the Constitution and, and what it means today of anybody that I know. Uh, and that said, it, it was recently made public that the Department of Justice had asked permission to detain people indefinitely, essentially without trial, during the course of this emergency. And I, I saw that and thought, now I must have misread something there. The president already has emergency powers that he can draw from um, during the course of, of this situation. Why does the Department of Justice suddenly think that it's necessary to have the power to detain people without the benefit of trial. When you heard about this, Bob, what was your reaction? Enraged and fearful. Fearful, because if we lose the rule of law in our country, we have lost it all. Uh, therefore, fearful is the first word that comes to mind. Now, uh, the right to detain people um, is is the right not to be detained except for probable cause is part of is deep in our dna in our culture in our legal heritage cover goes way back to england way back to the magna carta and uh, the constitution forbids uh, the government the only agency in the united states which is authorized to use force is the government we are not ever authorized to use force, and we are often prohibited. It's, it's against the law, usually, but government is the only one who can lawfully coerce or compel you. Well, the, the, the government cannot deprive you of your liberty except under very rigid constraints. And if they do that, um, every citizen and non-citizen in the United States has the right to bring what is called a habeas corpus proceeding, which is requiring the government to show cause why they are permitted to detain you. The last time, I believe, habeas corpus, and I think the only time, was ever suspended was, we may remember, when Lincoln did that during the Civil War, he suspended Lincoln was was very was not respectful of the Constitution in many ways because he felt that it was the Constitution, some of the provisions had to be subordinated to presidential power to preserve the Union. That, this, that debate on whether he was right or not still goes on today. But I say that only to show you how important the founders and our whole jurisprudence places the right to be not deprived of your liberty except on probable cause. So you said, what are they thinking? I have no idea what DLJ is thinking, what they're thinking is, what any government official thinks, how do they expand their power at the expense of the people?
What, what's frightening and, and quite frankly, Bob, disingenuous about this request is to essentially put the courts on pause. Now, I get the fact, and this has taken place all across the Bay Area here, where courts have said, you know, listen, during the current lockdown, we can't have people gathering together, so we're going to put everything on hold. But why would you essentially pause writ of habeas corpus when, if you're simply trying to determine, does the government have enough information against you to to keep you, to, to detain you in jail until such time as you have your official day in court. Why couldn't that be done in this day of technology through a video conference? If they're afraid of a, a potential uh, individual that has been arrested of, of, let's say, spreading the disease, spreading COVID-19 to the judge, can't the judge do this in chambers uh, via video and, and maintain or protect the constitutional right to habeas corpus? You ask a very good question. Of course, that assumes that government officials are working as hard as they possibly can to find ways to preserve an individual's freedom. But in fact, unfortunately, many of those, uh, particularly in law enforcement, are, don't seem to be always, or some of them never, motivated that way, how to preserve freedom, but rather they look upon their role as protecting the public, and that protection is to remove any threat, howsoever minor, using all of the tools at their disposal, so their bias is quite the opposite. Um, so we really need to be... I, give you. I, I can't speak to a particular public official or a particular act because I'm not familiar with it, but I fear that the motivation to preserve freedom is not as strong as many would like it to be uh, when held by people in power. And it seems as if then we need to be as vigilant now as back during the 2001 9-11 crisis, because even then, and we have lingering effects to this day, the government overstepping its constitutional authority under the, the guise of protecting us and eliminating the increased risk to terrorism. I mean, I, I, I guess this is sort of the notion that there are some politicians out there that have never seen a crisis that they did not want to somehow take advantage of. On your show, Craig, you and I have spoken before, and I certainly have spoken often on my show, about how the 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 one of the major tools in the governmental toolbox is to instill fear. If they can make people, the citizens, be fearful, they will look for protection. And they look for protection often to someone in authority. Often it's the church. Uh, many times it's the government. Please protect us from something. We don't feel that we are competent ourselves to uh, avoid, and we need a protector we need somebody, a greater figure than us, to protect us. Once the government instills fear, whether it's fear of drugs or fear of terrorism or fear of disease, once they have you afraid, then government has a very valuable condition which they can exploit. And we know that um, almost all of the onerous 
compromises of our freedom over the years, almost all of them from the benign of the institutional withholding taxes for World War II, they are always temporary measures designed to deal with a temporary problem. That's how withholding taxes came about. When you think of the concept of withholding taxes, paying your taxes before you even know you owe money, paying them in advance, Imagine if they were trying to enact that for the first time today. It's astonishing. But yet it was done in World War II as a temporary measure. We'll give it right back after the war's over. It's always temporary. The uh, Patriot Act, temporary. Just till we get rid of a few terrorists, then we'll give you back your rights of privacy. Temporary, temporary, temporary. But they never come back. Jermaine Greer has a quote that I think nicely sums up the warning that you're sharing. He says, freedom is fragile and must be protected. To sacrifice it, even as a temporary measure, is to betray it. Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, every Sunday morning, 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Check him out. Information available on the web, resources. Bob's got a new book out, too, called Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy. You'll find that online at bobzadek.com, along with podcast, mother information, and be sure to tune into his program Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. Bob Zadek, online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. All right, 546-47. Let's get you caught up on some traffic right now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. I've been duly corrected by Bob Zadek. It's not Wednesday, it's only Tuesday. Sorry if I frightened you. It's just, it seems to be, I don't know, very odd when you're working from home like this. You do lose track of time, don't you? All right, well, this gentleman's certainly not losing track of time or what's going on in the world. He is the... Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. He is Brian Johnston. Brian, great to have you on the program. I, I At a level, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out where exactly Governor Newsom is in this decision as he's ordered abortion clinics across the state to be closed during the shelter-in-place, and I suppose in the spirit of trying to uh, protect people from the spread of COVID-19, that's a good thing. But um, I thought these were health clinics. They've always said, uh, certainly Planned Parenthood has always tried to make us believe that they're actually running health clinics, in which case then, why would you shut down a medical facility during a medical emergency? Well, well, Craig, you might be ahead of me on this one. I hadn't realized we are urging uh, folks to have the governor shut down abortion clinics. It's an elective procedure. Has he actually gone ahead and done that? I may have missed that. That that, that was my understanding. Yeah, no, I hadn't heard that. Uh, I know that Planned Parenthood, we know that Mrs. Pelosi was actually using this opportunity to actually try to expand funding of the abortion industry through this omnibus bill that's about to go through. I hope it does go through, but not with that kind of funding. Here in California, as we know, the Democrat Party ideology has made abortion an absolute essential, but it is actually an elective procedure. 
And while the president has asked for all elective procedures to be put off, and most medical uh, facilities are, in fact, delaying elective procedures and not performing them, not only because they need the resources to deal with this coming pandemic. In fact, we expect it to, it's only really begun for us in California. So there's a lot of preparation to be made. But um, if he has, then I celebrate that. I didn't realize that the governor had also shut down abortion clinics because they've taken exception in other states, and they had to take the, the ruling of the governor of Ohio and Texas to include them in that. And uh, that was the only thing that stopped them because they weren't stopping. Even during the coronavirus scare, they, they wanted young women coming in, possibly being infected. And then, of course, the real goal is to end that life the child. That's their, that's their goal. That's an Do you anticipate goal. right now, Brian, given the fact that all of our attention is uh, diverted to so many other things, that there could be a possibility that the California state legislature will try to slip some things in kind of under the, the cover of darkness here in relationship to trying to provide more funding for organizations like Planned Parenthood during the crisis? Well, it wouldn't surprise me. It's not uncommon. And right now, because of the makeup of the legislature, they really... They can do whatever they want. They have a super majority. So these things won't get challenged, except by raising our hand and saying, wait a second, but we don't have the votes to stop that on any number of issues. Uh, more to the point, what they've done in the legislature is they've reduced the staffing to the legislators. And so they don't have the resources to track down many bills, as you know, are are 200 400 pages i think in the federal level uh the bill that's going through congress right now is at the senate uh is 200 plus pages and a lot of minutiae and so there's a lot to dig through um i still would like to know and i'm glad to stand corrected uh if the governor has included abortion clinics uh in his request for elective procedures to halt and so, and, you know, it, there's a degree to which it, 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 it makes sense at a certain level. And yet, on the other hand, you would think, well, if they're trying to do this within so many weeks of gestation, uh, obviously to say that the clinics will be closed down for weeks at a time, months at a time, potentially here, uh, raises some, uh, some good and, and, and fascinating questions all the way around. Brian, we've got a tight schedule. I want to appreciate you for the time. And Brian Johnston, again, um, in addition to his role with the National Right to Life Committee, is also the host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. You can stay on top of these and other pro-life-related issues by simply going to californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. As the state continues to try to figure out what stays open, what needs to be shut down, and we continue to see more of the rolling shelter-in-place take uh, occurrence across not just the state but the nation, it's raised questions from a constitutional standpoint in terms of assembly, and, and most importantly, of course, of interest to the church. If you say no more the next number of people gathered together and they have to be six feet apart, what does that do to your Sunday morning worship service? Well, let's get some insights now. We're joined by Brad Dacus, the um, 
founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute and a constitutional lawyer. Brad, we're one week into the Bay Area now statewide shelter-in-place orders. And what have you heard in terms of the, the, the emergency declaration by the governor and what that looks like in terms of impacting the churches and just how far potentially can this go? In other words, uh, it's one thing to say it's not a good idea, don't do it. But with the power of the law now, does this put the state actually in the position to bring penalties against a pastor or a church that, contrary to these shelter-in-place orders, meets anyone? <laughs> anyway? Yes. Um the uh, the fact is, Craig. Right now, uh, the order is uh, it's it's binding on uh, the entire state of California, all the churches in California. And his order, Craig, alarmingly, is one that uh, says that uh, that we can't uh, churches uh, cannot meet uh, at this time. Now, if this was a permanent order, we'd be in federal court and get struck down as unconstitutional immediately. But because it's indefinite. Because it's not indefinite, it's very limited. It's not likely going to be continuing on and on. Uh, the state can get away with that because of the compelling state interest of dealing with the uh, the issues of uh, you know of, of health and safety. And, and courts have held that that when you have a extremely peril, uh, peril perilling situation like this um, filled with peril, that they can uh, take this kind of uh, actions needed uh, as long as they're narrowly tailored and in the most least restrictive way. Uh, what I think what's really encouraging, uh, Craig, though, is the fact that. Beg your pardon. No, go ahead. I'm listening. Okay. Well, I think is really encouraging is the fact that I don't think it's going to continue. I do think what we're going to see is uh, two points. One is we're going to see uh, more and more churches uh, do, using um, Facebook to have church services and in contact. We at Pacific Justice Institute tomorrow are going to have a webinar at about 2 p.m. Uh, 2 p.m. People can contact Pacific Justice Institute and to find out that information or send emails or, um, you know, to, to find out more about that. Uh, if, they, if they receive our emails, they'll already have that. If they've already signed up for our Legal Insider, which they can do on our website. Um, and uh, we're going to talk all about how any church, how big or small, how all of them can have church services. The other thing I think we're going to see is I think we're going to see a, a pulling away in a graduated way so that while, while mega churches may not be able to meet immediately on Easter, uh, I think we're going to see... Uh, it, uh, at the very least, uh, easing up so that you can have small groups, home Bible studies, home home groups uh, like that, being able to start to meet as they start to ease up in other areas like restaurants, etc. The key thing we have to look for is to make sure that the restrictions are not more onerous uh, for churches and religious groups as they are for businesses like restaurants and, and the movie theaters. And that's what we're going to be watching very closely. What kind of liability, and we've read some stories about churches that in defiance of this, they're not going to let themselves be shut down by the enemy and so forth. And, I, you know, at a level, I, I like that. At a level, it seems to be uh, posturing. I mean, it's one thing to say that the church is resisting or pushing back against the government authority. It has a history of doing that since the days of the Roman catacombs to even the house church in communist China today defying the authorities. But there's a difference between restrictions on worship for political or sectarian reasons versus health reasons. What kind of a liability is a church potentially facing if they say, no matter what the government says, we're still going to meet? Uh, I believe we're looking at a misdemeanor, and I believe the terms are, last I checked, was, I think it was uh, 
uh, five months or six months behind bars, uh, is up to this amount, and then also up to a thousand dollars, potentially to the, against the, the church or potentially against everyone attending. I think uh, I think it's more likely to be levied against the church, but the uh, but that's the potential uh, penalty. But there's something even more onerous than that, and that's from a liability perspective when we're looking at. Uh, let's say a church disobeys the mandate. They have a, the church meeting, and then someone there catches the virus from someone else and dies. And the loved ones of that person who passed away say they're not Christians, they're angry, they sue the church. The church has lost potentially uh, some of its, its protection uh, because it, what it did was in direct conscious violation of the law and the mandate. Uh, that could be very problematic. I think that instead, the route that many churches are taking is that they need to be uh, utilizing technological technological resources like Zoom, um, and uh, we're going to train train people on Zoom. In fact, how to use Facebook uh, on how to have church services, and then other other forms of mi- of creative ministry, phone calls, and uh, Zoom meetings, and things like that for smaller groups. Um, it's there. It's it's something that uh, I think it's, it's it's time has come. We should take advantage of it and. Uh, but as things progress, if things continue just to get drawn out, drawn out, and this becomes a pretext for bullying on, on churches and, and pastors and Christians, uh, you can be assured that we at Pacific Justice stand ready uh, to uh, to challenge such such actions in court. And finally, counselor, if they want to get information, a church would like to participate in the webinar tomorrow. Uh, just send an email request, I guess, to uh, PJI? Yeah, I would send an email to... Um, uh, P-R-Z, or either P-R-E-Z, uh, at P-J-I.org. So, Prez, P-R-E-Z, at P-J-I.org, um, or uh, info at P-J-I.org. Either of those will, will get that uh, to us, and um, they should also sign up on our website to get our Legal Insider, and uh, we'll keep it. We're going to be keeping people updated all, all the time on this. We already have a memo explaining clearly what the rights of churches are, and we're updating that regularly regarding these mandates and restrictions and, and opportunities. So I encourage people to go to our website, sign up, so we can keep them updated, their pastor updated. Uh, there's some great opportunities um, on, in this midst of situation of, uh, of mandates. that I, uh, Like churches starting homeschool co-ops at, the, at their churches, great opportunities that we think churches can, can take advantage of as we, uh, as we move forward. Absolutely. A timely information and a timely juncture, quite frankly, here in, in the history of not just the state, but our nation, where the church can really rise up and be the church. If you would like to participate in that special closed webinar tomorrow, just send an email to info at pji.org. That's info at PJI, I think Pacific Justice Institute, pji.org. Our thanks to Brad Dacus, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, for that update. 6.03, let's get you an update on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center.